This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DTC pod. I'm your host, Jay. And today we have with us Matt Mullinax, who is the co-founder and CEO of Huron, a brand that creates purposefully designed products for men. Matt, we're super excited to have you on the podcast here. I know we're going to be talking a lot about your products and just generally like how you think about the market that you're in. But before we dive in, we'd love to pass the mic over to you. And uh, if you want to give a little bit of an intro about yourself and, and tell us a little bit more about Huron in your own words. Sure, Jay. Thanks so much for having me. A quick backstory, I guess, on me and kind of how that dovetails into Huron. So I was originally from Ohio, so I'm from Ohio, born in Cincinnati, born in Columbus, grew up in Cincinnati, spent most of my childhood in the Midwest, moved to the East Coast for undergrad, graduated in 2008, pretended to be an investment banker for the for a little bit. Um, turned out I was one of the world's worst investment banking analysts. It was also 2008, so not maybe the best time to graduate and kick off your finance career. So after a few months on Wall Street, I actually kind of started looking elsewhere for other opportunities and ended up joining the team at Bonobos as the six-ish employee. And super small team that was growing at a tremendous clip, really smart people. And I think that's kind of where I got my early exposure into what is now the DSC space. Really exciting culture and atmosphere, but quickly learned like what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be was kind of like Andy, which is run a business like this. So I kind of looked at his professional path and said, maybe I'd be best suited to kind of go back into finance, kind of better understand the guts and the inner workings of business and the numbers and the analytics and all that stuff. So I ended up moving to Chicago, worked at UBS, which is an investment bank for a number of years, and then spent some time on the consumer growth equity side, investing in brands like a Bonobos. And I think during my time in private equity, what I saw was a number of brands that were targeting the female consumer. So take like a drunk elephant, for an example, really cool packaging, amazing products, super cool founding story. And I thought for me, that was super compelling. And that at the time, there really wasn't an analog for the men's space. You know, I was a mid 20 something still going to my local CVS to buy neon colored body wash. So there's like a pretty big disconnect, right? And I think that was always kind of flagged internally as like, this is a category that I'd like to revisit professionally. After my time in Chicago, I ended up migrating West uh, for grad school. And shortly thereafter is when I started working on Huron. But I think my kind of affinity for the category, if you will, is really twofold. One, kind of, again, when I was an investor, kind of saw all the opportunities that were out there kind of targeting the female consumer. And that, I just didn't think there were a lot of great analogs on the men's side at the time. But I think more relevant and on a more personal note, I was just the kid that grew up with bad skin, right? So I had spent tons of time perusing aisles at your local drugstore, grocery store, you name it, I've sat in so many dermatologist offices only to rip through products that didn't work, right? And it wasn't until I spent some time on the West Coast, honestly, in my late 20s, that I started to explore kind of the more premium route, if you will. And for whatever reason, those products seemed to resonate with my skin. But, you know, whether it's walking into a store where I couldn't pronounce the name or being sold a product by someone wearing a lab coat, like the whole experience just felt very off to me. And my thought kind of originally was how could we kind of recreate the product prowess, the technology, the efficacy, but deliver that type of product to a much broader audience. So that was kind of the initial, you know, the early innings idea of what would become Huron. So 
ended up running a bunch of different kind of market survey pieces, kind of better understanding what guys currently buy, how do they transact, does someone buy on their behalf, et cetera. And then we took all those data points and actually launched a fake brand in early Q1 of 2018. So that was like a really powerful kind of third-party validation exercise, if you will, to kind of understand like if we were to put something out there, would people actually buy? Is there a market opportunity to be had? And I think even just for a few weeks of kind of running that experiment, we saw that there was actually a surprising amount of traction. So ended up moving from San Francisco, where I was living at the time, to New York. Ended up meeting my co-founder here in New York shortly thereafter. My co-founder, coincidentally, is named Matt, which makes things either super easy or more difficult, however you want to look at it. But Matt's background is in product innovation, corporate innovation, product development. So he built a number of products and brands under the Estee Lauder umbrella. And he is just an absolute savant when it comes to frontier technologies, how to build kind of the best products for men. And I think that was kind of definitely missing from my skill set up until that point. So we teamed up in early 2018, spent the rest of 18 building product, building the brand, raising a little bit of money. And then we launched in July of 2019. So we've been around for a little under two years. We're still a very small team. So we're a team of four. We do work with a, a few freelancers, but we're a pretty small kind of corporate team, if you will. And yeah, I mean, the mission has never been stronger, which is how do we provide a plus quality product to guys who are just kind of figuring it out. So being that kind of older brother type figure to kind of channel Matt's experience, knowledge, expertise in the space and kind of push it through a very relatable first person narrative around here's how we can kind of help you help yourself. So anyways, that's kind of the, the not so short backstory on, on me and Hiram. That's awesome. There's definitely a lot to unpack over there. So I'm excited to look and un unpack and talk about all that stuff. I'd be curious before we kind of get into, you know, the market that you're in a little bit more about the product. It seemed to me one thing that I like picked up on was that branding and having some sort of thing that can connect to the men's uh, skincare space was something that was really important to you. So I'd be curious before we kind of unpack everything over here, I think maybe the first thing we can kind of unpack is how do you think about your brand? I'd be curious, like, you know, what the process was to, to come up with the branding strategy there in terms of like everything from like colors to even logo to even the name of the brand, which I think is a, a very interesting and cool brand name. I really like that. And I feel like it definitely resonates with me as a male. Um, but I'd love if uh, you could like sort of unpack that for us a little bit. Sure. That might be... Um worthy of an entire separate conversation that would last probably 2x that the allotted time. But look, I mean, it's a it was a really fun exercise. We worked with a creative agency in New York called Gin Lane that did a obviously magnificent job. What we did is we really kind of looked at the competitive landscape and said, how does the market currently sound? How are things shaped? What's the on-package communication? And we did everything in our power to be different. So in a world where everything seemed to be tall, dark, slender, kind of very masculine, if you will. We wanted to be like short, fat, white, lean into red, just like very, very different in every opportunity that we could. And for us, what was super interesting is we just kind of like backed into the red, white, and blue color combo, which is kind of interesting. You know, it wasn't necessarily meant to be, but it was kind of, now it's kind of evolved into kind of like this vintage, like Americana type feel, which is really, really cool. And I think resonates with a lot of different folks. And I think for me, quite honestly, one of the, the points about Huron that's most interesting is actually the brand name. And every founder and every brand will have a story around the genesis of the name and how the naming process came about. And for us, we looked at a number of names. And what I think was, you know, in hindsight, looking back, what was kind of funny is the easiest answer was right in front of us, it was kind of hidden in plain sight, if you will. And 
So Huron was the street that I actually lived on in Chicago when arguably my skin issues were at their worst. So for me, it's like a constant daily reminder of the consumer that we're fighting for, the consumer that we're providing education around these products for, the consumer that we're developing products for. Um, So to have that kind of first-person relationship of me 10 years ago is really, really exciting. Because for us, it's never been about me or Matt or the team. It's always been about the guys we're trying to help. And I think kind of living up to that notion of helping guys help themselves is something we eat, breathe, sleep, live every single day. That's awesome. That's really cool. I did not know about that about your brand name. So it's kind of cool to see the the dots connect over there. Let's talk about your your career. I mean, you have taken a very unique path to, to becoming a direct-to-consumer founder. I know you mentioned you had some uh, previously before you kind of took on a founder role, you had some experience in investment banking, the finance space, and now you're here. How do you feel like those experiences have kind of played into what you're doing in your day-to-day? Is there stuff that you take from those experiences um, that have specifically driven some of your your brand strategy or your growth strategy or, or the things that you even do operate as like a team over there? How has that kind of impacted your world today? You know, I think there's probably no ideal or perfect founder background right? It's just kind of a collection of different experiences that ultimately bubble into a skill set that kind of arms you to be really strong in certain categories and maybe not as strong in others. And I think for me, having spent time in finance, I learned a lot about just the inner workings of a business, how margins work and how to think about profitability and how to think about growth rates and a lot of that stuff, probably spending way too much time in Excel. But I think how that's kind of manifested itself in Huron is we think a lot about efficiency and We think a lot about the outflow of capital and where is that going and how are those dollars coming back into the business. So for us, we preach efficiency across everything that we do from supply chain to marketing to think about hiring, et cetera. So that's kind of like constantly something that we're thinking about. And then my time at Bonobos, honestly, was pretty formative in the sense that that was my first real exposure to stepping inside of a company. Like I had worked in banking for half a year, eight months before you know, advising a number of clients, seeing Fortune 100 companies, et cetera, but actually kind of stepping inside the walls of a growing business was obviously a a totally different experience for me. And I think two things that were really eye-opening in a positive way from my Bonobos experience was, one, the focus on the consumer. You know, Bonobos is, is very well known as a company that has one of the highest on record NPS scores in terms of customer service and being able to basically problem solve or or tackle anything on behalf of the consumer and kind of living that firsthand and understanding how important it was. The DNA of that company was something that I've tried to carry over into Huron. And then secondly, was just this notion around hiring and strategy where some of the early folks at Huron, it was just a collection of pretty smart, really motivated, but also very, very empathetic people who knew what the mission was, who understood the consumer And everything that they did day in and day out kind of ultimately was to serve that person. And I think we've tried to borrow, again, some of those learnings to kind of infuse into the early days of Huron. Very cool. That makes a lot of sense over there. And that's uh, cool how your background kind of has tied into everything that you're doing today. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more, all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast, that's T-R-E-N-D 
bit.io slash podcast and look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. Let's take a moment to talk about the market you're in, the men's skincare market. It's uh, definitely become one that's increased in size. I, I feel like I do see a lot of products out there today around that space, even ones that are looking for like that premium look and feel. So I'd be kind of curious, you know, in, in terms of positioning here on, um, you know, you've built this awesome brand, you have this awesome story and things like that. What else are you kind of doing to position your product in that space and and really kind of try and be a winner in that space? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, one thing worth noting is I firmly believe that this is not like a, a one winner take all category. I mean, it is a monstrosity of a space that's only growing day in and day out. I think what we've seen over the past 14 months of being in lockdown is people kind of reflecting internally and thinking about what am I actually eating on a day to day? Like, what am I doing for my body on a day-to-day? Like, what makes sense for me? Like, how am I taking care of myself holistically? And self-care, certainly kind of broader personal care, certainly falls within that thought process. So it's awesome to see so many brands that have emerged who are trying to, like, better serve this consumer who's been historically underserved for quite some time. I think for us, like, because I can only talk to our strategy, but for us, I think one of the things that we've just really honed in on from day one is kind of that notion of relatability, right? You know, we're uniquely positioned in the sense that, you know, my partner, Matt, has spent decades developing product in this category. Not a lot of DZC brands kind of have that expertise early on in their brand trajectory. And secondly, we have a very kind of first-person narrative, which is my story. And I think our ability to kind of connect with these guys as they're kind of figuring out the landscape, figuring out the products that make sense for them. But for us, the most exciting thing is if we can give this consumer a little bit more pep in his step walking out of the apartment, a little bit more confidence as he's about to go give a Zoom presentation or potentially go on a first socially distant first date or whatever it is, like that's such a win for us. So I think, you know, again, it all kind of ties back to this notion of relatability, empathy being kind of two infrastructural pillars of our brand. And, you know, we're kind of excited about that. Very cool. You know, one thing that... uh kind of piqued my interest over there when you were talking was the fact that you mentioned, you know, the way that people are thinking about themselves and the people and the way that men are thinking about their self-care routines and things like that have changed during COVID. So I know you mentioned at the beginning that you launched back in 2019. So you did, you've done one year out of COVID, one year in COVID what are the differences that you've kind of seen in terms of, uh, you know, either go-to-market strategies or even like the messaging? Have you adjusted any of the messaging? Are you seeing anything that's interesting in terms of how people are reacting or what people's routines are and things like that and how it kind of affects your product strategy? Yeah, I think from a how it's affecting people on a day-to-day basis for our category, I think there's certainly willingness to kind of explore a bit more kind of across the, again, kind of broader personal care and wellness category, whether it's cooking more or whether it's a new lower alcohol booze brand. Like there's so many different ways that I feel like people are kind of exploring more brands that are emerging onto the scene and our category is no different, right? So for us, there's certainly been a tailwind, which we're appreciative for, but for us, it's like, how do we kind of make this interesting hard left turn that we've all had to face over the course of the last 14 months? How do we kind of make this 
onboarding of new potential customers, someone that we can cater to for the next five to 10 years, right? So how do we kind of introduce this guy to not only maybe a newer, better body wash, but also some of the other products in our assortment? So I think for us, it's largely about, you know, continuing to double down on the brand, continue to talk about who we are, what, what makes us different, the product quality. And I think a general consensus over the course of COVID is people are kind of digging into the why behind brands, right? Kind of identifying the personality of brands and kind of the personas who make up these brands, kind of what exists behind the scenes, people seem to be a lot more interested in. And I think it just gives us a lot more runway to continue to tell our brand story. Yeah, for sure. I definitely feel like I, I've probably spent more time in front of a screen um, during COVID, at least like, uh, you know, just being at home and, and things like that and definitely looking to explore. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about, you know, your product validation strategy. I, I know you kind of like uh, sneaked in that you, you launched a fake brand um, before going to market officially. Tell us about that story. I mean, what was that like? What kind of spurred the inspiration for even doing something like that? Because I don't think that's in your typical growth playbook or, or anything like that. And what are your learnings? Is there anything that you'd potentially do again when launching new products or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, really the idea just came from having a few beers with my roommates at the time in San Francisco, because I was kind of kicking around the ideas, obviously a category I've been passionate about for quite some time. And one of them said like, why don't you just build a fake brand? And I was like, well, I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't know anything about developing a website or building a website. And they're like, honestly, it's not difficult at all. And literally in 24 hours later, like we had a purchased URL, we had a Wix homepage, we had a bunch of different PDPs and we we're kind of off to the races. So I think the point for me with that exercise was actually that notion of third-party validation. I think a misconception of a lot of entrepreneurs is like they're very risk-seeking. In my experience, it's actually the exact opposite. Like how can you risk mitigate a lot of these challenges, obstacles, whatever, that you will face along this journey, whether it's omni-channel expansion, whether it's hiring, whether it's tackling a new marketing channel. We're always looking for ways to kind of stress test and really poke holes in kind of a thesis to figure out whether or not this is actually an opportunity for a brand at a given time. And I think that that's no different, right? So for me, it was this an opportunity worth pursuing as a fresh business school graduate with a lot of money to pay back to my, to my alma mater. You know, was it worth foregoing a salary for X number of months, years to kind of take a chance on this? So being able to kind of risk mitigate that decision was, was certainly something that I was into. Yeah, for sure. And how did you approach like getting that validation? What was your approach there? Was it like, you know, sharing it amongst friends, um, running Facebook ads or, or share, building up a list somehow? Like, what did you kind of do to get that validation you needed to keep moving forward? Yeah, I mean, hindsight's definitely 2020. And I feel like people ask me all the time, you know, well, what was your LTV to CAC from doing that exercise? I was like, I have no idea. Like, that was not really the point, right? And quite honestly, it was probably a little too much of a subjective exercise. But for me, I just wanted to get out and, like, see what the reaction would be. And I felt like I had a shockingly high number of positive responses to this, like, otherwise very jank brand that we had put together. So just seeing kind of the reaction from that, like how people were perusing the site, how people were attempting to purchase was very validating. So I, that kind of gave me the momentum, the confidence to kind of say, this is worth moving forward with. For sure. That's awesome. And I know you mentioned too that, you know, you've raised some money over here 
while building a product. Uh, you know, there's definitely different approaches for for building a business. We've seen it kind of both ways: the fundraising approach and the non-fundraising approach. What were you kind of looking for for brands that you know might be interested in potentially fundraising and raising money to grow? Uh, I'd be interested if you could just kind of like unpack that story for us over there, like what your focus was maybe, like what you kind of look to like accomplish and how do you think about just fundraising in general as a brand strategy? And and do you think all brands should do it or is it very specific case? Yeah, to start with your last point, I think it's very specific. I think it's it's literally case by case. And I think it's also kind of a broader business decision in terms of how you ultimately want to run the brand. Because the moment you take a check from someone, there's a shot clock that starts ticking, right? Because at that point, you owe that person money back. So it's um, there's a number of different ways to skin the cat. I mean, we thought about the Kickstarter route. There's just a bunch of different routes that we explored in terms of like what would make the most sense for us. I think for me, why I felt that ultimately raising some capital would be the way to go is because we wanted to invest in the brand before we launched. So, you know, rather than kind of come into the market with a certain packaging, a certain look and feel, and then reinventing the brand at an indeterminate number of months thereafter, like just felt like to me, just like the wrong way to do it. Again, there's no perfect way to do it, but it just felt like if our biggest challenge is changing consumer behavior that has been on autopilot for 10 to 15 years, I didn't want this consumer to grow an affinity for this brand that we were ultimately going to change. So for me, it made sense to invest in the brand kind of pre-launch. So in order to do so, we needed to raise money. And when I kind of thought about the fundraising strategy, I mean, look, like we talked to a lot of people, but I think one of the areas that I'm most proud of in the journey is we you know, we made it a point to try and raise money from people who had built brands before because we thought that they would be the most value accretive in terms of helping out with the hiring process, like thinking about new marketing channels, how to make tough decisions, and just things like that that are very tactical and day-to-day that uh, maybe a VC might not have as much exposure to. So kind of getting that operational know-how on board early on was something that was very important. And then for us, it was just kind of like a... You know, it was like a game of telephone, right? It's like, do you know someone, someone know someone, like having those conversations. And, you know, ultimately we strung together a pre-seed that we were really, really excited about. And uh, yeah, very fortunate, very grateful. That's awesome. That's incredible. And I, I love that approach. Not everyone invests in brand first. Uh, sometimes it's about the product, um, but I love how you kind of talked about that and kind of connected it to that bigger story over there. So I know we're coming close to the end of the podcast over here. As we kind of wrap up over here, I'd be curious, you know, you've been in business for now a few years. What kind of advice would you give out to other founders, um, whether they're in the skincare space or not, just other direct-to-consumer founders, e-commerce founders um, that maybe you've learned from your experiences? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think one of the things that I try and focus on is this is really a journey of focus, right? There's going to be a lot of vendors and service providers who are constantly vying for your time. And you just have to be very, very comfortable in saying no, right? So we, I mean, we meet with a lot of groups, we talk with a lot of groups, but if something isn't going to impact our immediate or intermediate needs, let's call them, then it's just not a fit at the time. Because as a team of four, like we're fighting and clawing to get hours in the day that we can work, right? So it's just, you have to remain focused. You have to understand kind of what's an immediate term focus, what's a near term focus, 
but also be able to kind of see the forest through the trees and say, here's our six-month plan, here's our 12-month plan, here's where we want to be in five years. So it really is an exercise in focus. Secondly, and quite honestly, one of the things that I've struggled with to date is it's really hard striking a balance, right? Because the lines really blur between being an entrepreneur, being an early-stage startup employee, and life, right? Because there is no nine-to-five, there is no punching in and punching out. I mean, customers are always going to send you chats. People are always going to be sending emails. The to-do list only gets longer, but you know, th- this is certainly not a sprint. I don't know if it's a marathon necessarily, but maybe it's like the 5,000 meter where it's like, definitely you need to be running fast enough, but you, you got to keep some gas in the tank. So I think honestly, like finding balance is something that I would try and preach early on. It's like, you have to find some time to do the things that will keep you going for the long run, whether that's self-care in the form of exercise or meditation or journaling or eating well. Like you have to find time to kind of compartmentalize yourself away from work to do what it is that you need to do to keep yourself in check. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And especially now, um, you know, with more people spending time at home and that work-life balance has kind of been blurred somewhat. So I'm sure it makes it even harder and even more necessary to, to take that self-care and things like that. So, you know, as we kind of wrap up over here, this has been an awesome episode, Matt. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast to, to chat about Huron, your, your brand strategy, your approach, the way that you kind of think about the market as well. And before we go ahead and conclude it, I'll pass the mic over to you one last time. Tell us uh, what's next for Huron and uh, where people can learn a little bit more about you or uh, connect with the brand as well. Sure. Yeah, I think 2021 is going to be a really, really exciting year for us. We have a bunch of new initiatives coming out that I would love to talk about, but probably can't. But I think there's a lot of growth potential from a product standpoint, from a channel standpoint that we're really, really excited about. And then I'm a pretty open book when it comes to uh, having conversations or you know chatting for 15 or 20 minutes so people can certainly reach out. I'm just Matt at useheron.com. I feel like I've been a huge beneficiary of people lending me 10 to 15 minutes of their time. So I'm a big believer in paying it forward. And then you know we're on the, all the socials that use Huron, which we try and provide fun, informative uh, content that hopefully can, can help people along the way. Awesome. Well, Matt, thanks so much again for joining us on the podcast. This was an awesome episode. I really learned a lot and I really enjoyed uh, getting a chance to talk with you. Hopefully our audience found this as insightful as I have. If you did, feel free to drop us a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time on the DTC pod. Thanks, Jay.